Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Neil Phelan, Jr., preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Good morning. morning. I got up the steps without crutches. I'm making progress. (laughs) What a good place to be this morning. I've enjoyed our fellowship and the handshakes and hugs and the song service, our prayer. Uh, it's, I was sitting there thinking how great it is to be able to be in the house of the Lord. Last night I didn't sleep very well, so I got up and I picked up a book. I don't know if you remember this book or not, but uh, Elder Virgil Lowrance put out a um, biography, autobiography, and some of his writings. And I was just going through that and reminiscing over Harmony Church and remembering the first time we walked in this place. and. What a blessing this place has been in our lives. And I thought back, you know, when we first joined the church and my ministry here and uh, how good it is to, to still come here. Um, I was thinking about coming here as a child. I remember my grandmother brought me here and my mother brought me here a few times. I didn't come much, but you know, it's amazing. The few times I came to this church, just as a child, the impression that this church had upon me later in my life when we came back to this church and started visiting it as adults, I look back and I remember that spirit or that feeling I had being here at Harmony Church. And I remember my grandmother picked up the good old songs and she said, I never saw that. It said on the front of that cover, the cream of the old music. And I remember her laughing about that. And you know, every church has kind of a different spirit about it. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but you go into different churches and uh, you can feel God's spirit in most of them, but yet each church has its own personality, and our church has a really great personality. I feel like it always has. I've been very blessed to be a part of this church, and uh, I just appreciate it. This morning, though, if you have your Bibles, uh, I've been reading in the Gospel of John. I'd like to go over to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. As I came across this particular miracle that Jesus Christ performed, it was a a blessing to me to, to meditate upon it and to see some of the blessings and some of the truths that we find in this miracle. I'll just read it to you. We'll start in chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Will thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately 
the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Nothing Jesus did in his life was without significance. Everything that he did, there we could see signs and doctrines, uh, things about ourselves that we could learn. And sometimes I'm reading things that Jesus did, and I'm trying to figure in my own mind, now what is there in this for me? I can promise you, and everything that Jesus Christ ever, ever did, there's something there for you. And it is our job to try to figure out what that particular thing was. Now, his first miracle, we find his first two miracles are in the previous chapter. His first miracle was where Jesus turned the water into wine. We might say, well, that's a nice miracle. Jesus turned some water into wine, and we know he's got the power to do that. But yet, there was something in that miracle, a lesson there, that we find it was a picture of the uh, Jewish age, the time before Christ, comparing it to the new wine that Jesus made, which was better, which is a picture of the gospel age or of the church age. Jesus said, or they said, well, you've kept the best wine until last. And usually uh, you give the first wine first and everybody drinks a lot of that and then they don't know what they're drinking after that. (laughs) But Jesus performed that miracle. He gave, uh, and he was a picture of how that, you know, they had the law age uh, and the gospel age was second. And how the law age was good in the times of the Jews. They were very blessed with God's presence, uh, with the law he gave them, uh, with God giving them the land of Canaan and everything that went with it and the prophets. But yet, my friends, today we've got something better than that, don't we? We have a perfect testimony of Jesus Christ. We know how we are saved from our sins. And that day they were offering all those sacrifices and Christ was not even revealed to them. How much better it is for us today to understand what Christ has done for us. Well, this miracle we're looking at this morning was performed at Bethesda. Bethesda means the house of kindness. And we were about to see a great act of kindness bestowed upon this impotent man by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful picture of our salvation that we're going to see this morning. And as Titus wrote in Titus 3 and 4, But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yes, we see here a beautiful picture of our salvation, a picture of kindness towards a man that was unable to help himself, which is basically what we were without Christ. This man is impotent, which means that he was feeble, he was diseased, he was sick, He couldn't heal himself. He's among a mass of other sick people. If you would have gone to the pool on that occasion where Jesus was that day, you would have seen all kinds of diseases and all kinds of crippled people hoping that they would get well. As we look at this, uh, there's a lot of lessons for us this morning that I want us to look at concerning our salvation. And one of the first things I want you to see, this is a beautiful picture of our depravity. Here is a man that is helpless, and that's what we were without Christ. 
Our depravity is uh, our inability to save ourselves from our sinful and our fallen condition. None of us could have done what Christ did, could we? No one here can put away a single sin. No one here can get out of their sick, sinful, and fallen condition apart from the person of Jesus Christ. And as we look around the world today, we can see the depravity of man. I mean, I feel it in myself sometimes. I know I'm not totally depraved because God's Spirit dwells within me. I can do some good things now. (laughs) But before that, I couldn't do anything good. You know, man left to himself as a bankrupt, guilty sinner, unable to do anything good. Can't do anything good. And you look around the world and you just see the depravity of man. It's really very apparent to to us, to many of us, to see the depravity of man. Marilyn and I were watching a show the other night, one of our favorite shows on TV. We like to watch American Idol because we like the music and everything. And I thought, well, this is a show we can watch that maybe won't have anything in it. Well, it's just us here today, so I'm going to be quite blunt this morning, but we were watching the show, and so this man, this boy had written a song about his grandfather, and we, I thought, well, this is going to be a nice song about his grandfather. Well, he, he sings the song, and it's, Grandpa, why didn't you tell me? And come to find out his grandfather was gay, and his grandfather didn't want to share with his grandson that he was gay. And so everybody's shedding these tears, and they're all sad because grandfather could. I'm thinking, look at the emotionalism that's involved here in this. Right. They're trying to make something very evil look like a man is helpless, and he can't help it, and poor this poor grandfather and everything. You know, to me, it would have been a great thing for one of the people there on the show to have presented the gospel to the grandfather and said, you know, uh, you're a bankrupt sinner, but there is hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I'm a firm believer in the fact that we have no power over some of the things that entice us, some of the sins that entice us. Some men may be enticed that way, and some women, and there are other things of sinful nature that we are enticed with. But it's one thing to be enticed with a sin, and it's another thing to act upon it. Right. You know, acting upon sin is sin. And we see this so much in the world today, even in the news today, some of the things I've heard. They're actually performing operations on babies to change their sex. Is that sick? I mean, is that not a picture of the moral depravity of humanity? And we are watching it, listening to it, reading about it, and it's actually making some of God's people to where they are starting to accept it. They've got this emotional thing. We need to be careful, my friends, about our emotions. Amen. Because sometimes your emotions for your son or your daughter or whoever it is in your family can cause you to make the wrong decision in God's house Amen. or to act wrongly upon something. You look in the Old Testament and you don't see the prophets acting emotionally about somebody that was in their family, somebody they loved, somebody they were associated with. I like that story over in, I think it's the book of Kings where there's a guy there and he's, he's, he has caused trouble in the city and nobody would do anything about it. So one of the older women goes in and cuts his head off and throws it out the window. <laughs> It's amazing how the wisdom of some of the older women excels anybody else's. They know what right and wrong is, and they're not afraid to speak out. Well, this man is a picture of depravity. 
uh, he's unable to save himself from his sickness. And you know, without God's grace, we don't even know what sin is, do we? I mean, if you didn't have the Word of God, you wouldn't even know. There's a lot of people say, well, there's a lot of gray areas out there. Those gray areas, we can't really make a decision. Yeah, you can. It's, It's gray because you don't know the Word of God. You don't know the Word of God. I was watching a commercial the other night on that show, and it was a pharmaceutical company. And the pharmaceutical company said, well, you know, you don't need to take this drug if you're pregnant because it could kill your unborn baby. Well, they called it an unborn baby, but yet the abortion clinic are putting babies to death left and right every day. They have the legal right to do so, but yet a drug company can be sued if this drug puts, uh, uh, causes a baby's death. Now, you may be saying this morning, I'm in church today, and I didn't really want to hear about all this stuff. But my friends, if the church doesn't speak out on some of these things, who's going to? We should have a position on all of this, and we need to, be, we need to understand what our position is. Amen. If we're going to be light in a dark world, we've got to know what's right and wrong. And it is, I think, the responsibility of the ministry of the church to speak out on these things. I'm not preaching politics. I'm not preaching Republicans and Democrats. I'm talking about a moral issue that we read even in the Old Testament where God defines those things as sin. And here we find that... Many people don't even know that is sin. Now, I don't believe a person who is born again can know that sin. But I believe a born again person should know that it is sin. We need to understand that. And that just shows how depraved that God's people could be if it weren't for the person of Jesus Christ. This doctrine of depravity is kind of a forgotten doctrine. Not preached much anymore because... You know, it can make people kind of feel sad. <laughs> well, we should feel sad <laughs> because we're sinners. You know, how are you going to walk uh, in, in humility if you don't feel like you're a sinner and recognize that you've fallen far short? I was walking up to the pulpit this morning. I thought, you know, I'm such a, I don't really feel like, I mean, I feel like such a sinner. I don't need to be the person up here preaching today, <laughs> but yet that's my job. <laughs> and so the Lord calls sinners to preach. But the question about this man this morning is I want you to see how, how, what depravity is. When we're talking about people becoming God's children, I think that a lot of the Christian world, they really don't understand how depraved man is. How depraved is man? Could this man have uh, made a decision to, just made a decision to be healed? Somebody come over to the man and say, well, I want you to make this decision this morning. Jesus could have said, I want you to accept me as Jesus Christ to be healed. Did Jesus do that? No. Did he ask this man, I want you to act upon your faith this morning. And by acting upon your faith, you're going to be healed. Did Jesus do that? No. Did he tell the man, well, I want you to recite some words this morning. We've got this little special prayer for you this morning. And if you'll recite this, this prayer, then you'll be totally healed of your illness. Did Jesus ask him to do that? Well, why would we say then that a person who is depraved can do all of those things and then not be a depraved sinner anymore? I would think that if a person were not able to do that to cure themselves from a natural infirmity, how much more would you have to do to save yourselves from being dead in trespasses and in sin? 
that would be a far greater leap than to heal yourself from an infirmity. The doctrine of our depravity finds itself in Romans 5 and 12, where the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Here is where man fell and became a ruined sinner, a depraved sinner, unable to help himself from his fallen condition. It was in Adam. We go all the way back to Adam, and somebody might say, well, you know, I don't know why what Adam did affected me. I wasn't there. Well, Adam is your federal was your federal head and representative. He was of the whole human race. I like the illustration Elder Sonny Piles used to use about that. He said, it's like if you went to the fountainhead of a stream and you poured a poison into it, and everybody below it drank from that stream, they all became poisoned. And so we find that's exactly what happened in the original sin. We all became sinners in Adam. Nobody has escaped it. The evidence of it is found in the same verse. For all have sinned. <laughs> For all have sinned. Does anybody here this morning not sinned? If you can raise your hand and say that you have not sinned, I'll tell you something. The Bible says you're a liar. <laughs> because every one of us have sinned in our life. This death has passed upon every one of us. And you know, when you come down to the uh, speaking of depravity, most Christians will agree with this verse of Scripture. They'll say, yes, everybody became sinners in Adam. They all fell in Adam. But the question among most, most, most men is, not did Adam fall or did we all fall in Adam, but how far did we fall in Adam? How far did you fall? Did you just fall a little ways? Did you kind of become kind of dead? Or were you really dead in trespasses and in sins without hope? without the person of Jesus Christ. That's where I fell. That's what the Bible says I did. I believe it. How far did you fall? Well, let's see now. How far did you fall? You fell only far enough that if you'll recite a few words, you can get out of it. You know, it's like how, how long a rope do you need to get down in that pit to get mankind out of that pit. How long a rope do you need? Well, your rope is just, you're going to recite a few words and you're going to get out of that pit. Yep. Well, some people got a different rope. They say, well, if you'll accept Jesus as your personal Savior, that'll get you out of that pit. You know, that sounds like the longest rope you can get. But you know, the problem with that is what can a dead person do? <laughs> I've never known a dead person to accept anybody of you. Can you go to the graveyard this morning and ask anybody to accept Jesus to get out of the grave. I promise you when Jesus Christ comes back with the voice that raises the dead, he's not going to ask anybody if they want to get out of the grave. He's going to raise them out of the grave by the vo by his voice. Amen. And that's exactly how you became a child of God. You didn't do anything about that. Wasn't your rope? Jesus Christ spoke and gave you life. That's how you got out of your depravity. I like that illustration Elder Glenn Blanchard used to use. <laughs> and I remember him being in this pulpit, and he had a pencil. And he had man down in this pit, and then he had a ladder in there. And he said, how are we going to get out of that pit? Are we going to climb down that, somebody going to climb down that ladder and get you out of that pit? 
He said, no, Jesus just came down and got you out. <laughs> Nobody came down there and got you out. <laughs> so how deep, is, how deep is the pit that you were in? I can tell you it was so deep. You couldn't get yourself out of it. You know, so let's just give, give an illustration of a natural death and compare it to spiritual death here. <clears throat> and you had the quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. That's where we all were. We were dead in trespasses and in sin. So let's suppose a person fell from the top of the Sears Tower, which I know is not the Sears Tower anymore. I think it's the uh, Willis Tower, isn't it? So let's say you fell off the top of that thing and you splattered all over the pavement and you are dead. So how dead are you? Are you really dead or just kind of dead? You're dead. You're dead. Now, can you now make a decision to be alive again? Can somebody come and talk to you a little bit and get you to make a decision to be alive again? Are you going to say, well, I think I'll, I like that message. I'm going to make a decision to be alive again. <coughs> no, you can't make a decision to be alive again because you're dead. And that's just how dead we were spiritually. Nobody can come along and do anything, give you a rope, give you anything that you can say to get out of your death. It must take someone who has power over death. It must take someone who has a rope that is as long from heaven all the way down to earth and into hell. That is the only person that's got a rope long enough to get you out, and that is the man or the person Christ Jesus, the kindness of God towards man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Is that plain? Not by something you said, not by anything you went through, only by the person of Jesus Christ. So here is a beautiful picture of, of our depravity in this one man. Well, there's more to this. This is also a beautiful picture of God's unconditional election. Notice that Jesus chose this man out of everybody else that's there. I don't know how many people were around Bethesda on that occasion, but there were a lot of people. And so Jesus goes up to this one particular man, chose him out of every one of them, and healed him. Now, was that fair? Was that fair? <laughs> some people say, well, you know, I don't think election's fair. It's not fair that God chose some and left some others out. It's just not fair. You know, God can sovereignly do what he wants to do. Amen. It's just as fair as anything. I mean, it would have been fair if Jesus didn't do anything, right? He didn't have to pass by Bethesda, did he? He didn't have to go there on that day. He didn't have to choose this man. Why him? I guess somebody might say, well, you know, he probably healed this man because he was the easiest one to heal. The other ones were really difficult. So I'm going to start off with this easy man here. I'll heal him along the way and path here, and everybody can write about this and know that I healed somebody. You know, somebody might say, well, you know, Jesus healed this man because he saw in his future life that this man was going to do something good. And so he healed this man. That's why people explain election away. God chose somebody because they saw later on down the line that this man was going to accept Jesus and do something good. Or God chose this man because they saw he was going to do some good thing in his life or that he was going to, step, get, he was going to get in the water anyway, so I'll just go ahead and heal him. 
doesn't say anything about that in here. It just says that Jesus walked up to this man and healed him. Now in Romans 9 and 11, the Apostle Paul makes it clear about that as well. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the pur purpose of God according to election might stand. Did you get that? The children were not even born, speaking of Jacob and Esau. They didn't do any good or any evil. There was no foreseen good or any foreseen evil. I mean, God foresaw all the good and evil they would ever do, but that's, he's making it clear that's not the reason that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. So this man didn't do any good or evil. You know, the doctrine of election, um, Brother Dan preached on it a few Sundays ago. I always like to hear the doctrine of election preached. It's probably my favorite doctrine in all the Bible. If you come to this church, you're going to hear about the doctrine of election. As a matter of fact, I might preach on it too much. I don't know, but it's, it's a favorite thing. I love to preach on the doctrine of election. You know, when I learned about the doctrine of election, I was so excited. I mean, I was so excited to understand why I love God. You know, I, I was trying to conjure up this love thinking, why? But the reason I love God is because He first loved me and He placed His Spirit within me and gave the ability to love Him. God the Father loved me. He loved His people. He chose them and He placed His Spirit within them. Amen. There's a very big um, Baptist church over near where we live and I don't know how many hundreds of people are in it. And I gave my book uh, to some of them, some of our friends, um, the Manifesto of Grace book, and I wrote about the doctrine of election in that book. And I don't know if they actually had ever read the whole book, but apparently they had looked through it, and they knew that election was in that book. And so they were talking about election in one of their classes there, and they said, you know, we were had some disagreements on election, and some of the people said they didn't even think it was in the Bible. <laughs> And they said, well, we know that you wrote about it. Would you teach us the doctrine of election? I said, okay. So uh, maybe eight, eight or nine of them came over to our house. And so I gave them a lesson on the doctrine of election. Anyway, I didn't hear back from them very anymore about the doctrine of election except for one person. And that person, Meryl and I saw her one day, and she said, well, I know the doctrine of election is in the Bible. But I know what I'm supposed to do, so I'm not going to worry about it, basically, is what she said. And I'm thinking, well, what are you supposed to do if it's not to represent the truth of God's Word? Amen. You know, you look through the Scriptures, and uh, election is taught over 30 times in the Bible. It's taught in the Old Testament. It's taught in the New Testament. Uh, it's uh, elect is used 20 times, election six times, and... Chosen, the word chosen, which is, you know, speaks of God's election, is mentioned many, many times in the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45 speaks of our election. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, which is a picture of God's people, by the way, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. <laughs> God chose his people before we ever knew him. Ephesians 1 and 4, according to He has chosen us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Jesus healed this man and he didn't even know who Jesus was. 
It was many days afterwards that Jesus came back to him and he found out Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you're a child of God this morning, I can tell you, Jesus Christ died and paid for your sins before you ever knew who he was. Is that not kindness? <laughs> Even foreseeing the sin that you and I were going to commit in our lives, he still did it. Did Christ die for righteous people or people that were going to be righteous? No, he died for sinners. This is the faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, the Apostle Paul said. That's one of my favorite verses of Scripture. I remember Brother Bradley preached on that one time. And it was like, I memorized that Scripture right when he said it. It was right on my heart. You know, the Lord had already written it on there anyway. But when he preached it, it really came to light. And I understood that Jesus Christ did not save me because of anything I ever did, but because He loved me. And He came into this world and He died upon the cross even seeing every sin I would ever commit in my life, that He loved me enough to go to that cross. How would I take any credit for that? This man's miracle was not performed by part Jesus and part Him. It wasn't cooperative between the two of them that they're going to, He's going to get this miracle, and it wasn't for your salvation either, my friends. It wasn't you and God working together. You were working against Him. Every one of us were. <laughs> If God hadn't changed this, we'd never do anything for Him. Paul taught election over and over again. Peter taught it. First Peter. By the way, Peter didn't stick election over in the back part of his epistle. He begins his epistle with it. It's that important to the apostle Peter. First Peter 1 and 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That's a great way to begin an epistle, isn't it? If I was going to write an epistle, that's the way I'd begin it. I'd begin with election. <laughs> that's a great, great, great doctrine. Jesus Christ preached on it at least seven times. I believe He preached on it more than that. That's all we have in the Bible, but He preached on it more than that. I would think that any man that's called of God would preach on election at least seven times. Shouldn't they preach on it at least seven times since Jesus did? I mean, if a preacher's going to say, I'm Christ-like... I'm representing Jesus Christ in the pulpit. Wouldn't you think he'd preach on election at least seven times? Amen. Well, we've got people in large churches that go to church all the time. They've never heard it preached on one time. They don't even know what it is. They don't understand its place in the everlasting covenant. That covenant that was made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the world was ever spoken into existence. The Father chose a people. That's election. The Son agreed to die for them. And the Holy Spirit agreed to regenerate them. That was all made before you were ever born. And before you ever knew about it. But you know about it now. Meditate upon it. Think about it. Think about your salvation. Think about the part about God knowing you before the world began. Think about the plan that they made to rescue you from a fallen hell which you had gone into had it not been for the work of Jesus Christ. I've never heard anybody talk about this particular miracle and say, you know, that miracle that Jesus performed at Bethesda really wasn't fair. Did you ever hear anybody say that that miracle wasn't fair? It wasn't fair. Why would they say that election's not fair? Isn't it amazing how confused people are? They don't understand God at all. 
They think they know God, know all about God. They don't know anything about God. If you don't understand that God is sovereign and He can save who He wants to save, you don't know anything about Him. If you don't understand that God loves who He wants to love and He doesn't have to love everybody, you don't know anything about God because it's all in the Bible. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's about a sixth grade expression. Most people with any kind of intelligence, with any kind of understanding, understands what that means. But the reason that people don't understand is they try to explain it away. They don't like God. Really, if you ask some people about God, and you tell them what God has done, and the things that God says, and the things that God... When you come right down to that, they don't like God. They don't like the God of the Bible. Is that not a picture of our own depravity? It shows what a sinner you are if you don't believe that God loves some people and He doesn't have to love everybody. If you believe that's true, why don't you love everybody? (laughs) Put it back on you. You don't love everybody. You're never going to. Well, let's move to our next point. We're running out of time. It's a beautiful picture of something else, of particular redemption. We might even speak of it as limited atonement. Somebody might say, I never heard of that before. Well, you're going to the wrong church. (laughs) Particular redemption. This miracle was for a particular person limited to him alone. Jesus could have healed every one of them on that occasion, couldn't he? Couldn't he have just said, be healed? And everybody was healed on that occasion. Did you know if you look at the miracles in the Bible where Jesus Christ healed people, he never did that? Now, he fed a lot of people. He did some things for a lot of people. But every miracle that Jesus Christ performed was for that person, an individual person, somebody that Jesus Christ chose, somebody that he set his countenance upon. And that's what particular redemption or limited atonement is. Limited atonement means the atonement of Christ upon the cross was limited to the elect. Those the Father gave him, those that the Father chose, those that the Father loved, same thing. My sheep, same people. My people, same people. Same language all through the Bible. Jesus Christ did not die for the whole world. Somebody said, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That world is the world of people given to the Son by the Father. That word world, you better be careful with it in the Bible because it can lead you into some false theology. Caesar taxed the whole world, but he didn't tax us. (laughs) If Jesus Christ died for the whole world, my friends, let me tell you something. The whole world's going to heaven. That's right. Because Jesus Christ is a successful Savior. And whoever He died for is going to be with Him in glory. That's right. He's not going to lose any. Jesus Christ died for a particular people. And He shed His blood for a particular people. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Jesus Christ had knowledge when He went to the cross and He knew who He went to the cross for. He wasn't, he's not being introduced to his people today, my friends. 
He's not being introduced to people going to heaven on a daily basis or on Sunday mornings when somebody does something. Let me introduce you to this person. They just accepted you. Now they're going to heaven. Well, I didn't even know that person. I'm glad to know they're going to heaven now. My friends, Jesus Christ knew exactly who he died for. He doesn't need to be introduced to anybody or anything. The death of Christ was not for an entire city, an entire nation, or an entire world. It was for God's elect family, those the Father chose. In John 17, in Jesus Christ's priestly prayer, listen to Jesus speak about it. Jesus was speaking to the Father about himself, and he says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Amen. How many did Jesus Christ die for? As many as the Father gave him. The Father elected a people and gave them to his Son. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of the Father which has sent me, that of all that he has given me, I shall raise them up the last day and shall lose nothing. My friends, nobody is going to be lost. Now, you may be a child of God lost in this world to sin, but you're not lost to the Father who loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love, and He'll keep loving you, just like a father and mother love their children that's gone astray. But He's not losing anybody. Jesus Christ is not in heaven today shedding great tears that some people are not going to do what they should do on Sunday morning. He's not up in heaven worried that his blood did not pay the entire price for the sin of every one of those little lambs that were given to him by the Father. He's not going to be introduced to his bride and not know who she is when he comes down to take her home to be with him in glory. He knows his bride and he loves her. And he always will. The death of Christ was for a particular people and this miracle was for a particular man. Jesus Christ could have healed every one of them, but he didn't. He chose one man, he healed that man. And he has power over all flesh, and he could have redeemed anybody he wanted to, but he redeemed those that were given to him by the Father. This man was healed, and he was healed immediately. And there's another beautiful picture, something else about God, his irresistible grace. (laughs) You know, did you read the words when we read it? Jesus Christ said, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately, the man took up his bed and walked. There wasn't any conversation going on between Jesus and this man. Well, I'd like for you to take up your bed and walk if you'll accept me, if you'll exercise your foot. No, this man was healed immediately. He was healed before he even knew what happened. You know, that's the way people are born again. Amen. You know, you may be able to say, well, I was born again on this spot. I can't. I don't remember when I was born again. Uh, I believed in God before I ever went to church. I like what Helen Keller said when they presented the gospel to her, and I've said this many times, but she couldn't hear or speak, and they learned to communicate her with sign language, touching her and everything, and they told her about Jesus Christ. She said, I already know him. I just didn't know his name. You know, that's what the gospel does for you. You're born again by the immediate work of the Holy Spirit. But when the gospel is presented to you, you know his name, don't you? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Why does the word name Jesus have such an impact upon you? If it does this morning, if it does, why? 
because he took up his residence in your heart. You're a born-again person. You're spiritually alive. When you learn that he died for you upon the cross, it has an impact upon you. You love him. We love him because he first loved us and died for us. That's why you love Jesus Christ. This man's miracle wasn't because of his volition or his free will or his choice or any other thing. Jesus healed him immediately. He was made whole, took up his bed, and walked. Ephesians 2 and 1, the Apostle Paul says, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Anything there about the creature doing anything? No. It's immediate. A beautiful picture of God's irresistible grace. So it was later he learned who Jesus Christ was. He took up his bed and walked. You know, my friends, this morning, I'll close saying this. If Jesus Christ has performed this miracle of kindness for you and brought you out of your sinful depravity, it is time for you to do the same. Get out of bed. Quit being lazy in God's house and in your religious profession. And take up your bed and walk. Thank you for your attention. Well, we heard some preaching today. I mean, we I'm just delighted by it. There were a few things he said I wanted to make some comment on. He talked about, you know, people getting wrapped up in do to get religion. And one of the things that happens, I think, to people who are born again is they begin to see that I don't hold up to God's moral law. I don't measure up. And one of the first things that they, in a state of ignorance, can fall victim to is the thought that, well, you better start towing the line then, right? That makes them a potential victim to legalism. Like, I haven't lived up to the standard, so I'd better live up to the standard or I'm going to go to hell. But reality will teach you that you can never live up to the standard, and that's why you have to be saved by grace. That's why the Lord's institution, this single institution the Lord founded, His church, teaches that doctrine, that you're saved by grace. You should try to do the best you can with respect to the moral attributes of God and how you live, but you ain't ever going to do it good enough to get to heaven. That's what Jesus did. Okay, That's one thing that comes up a lot of times. Uh, He talked about how deep is the pit, and the pit is deep. The pit that we fell into in the fall, very deep. But I'll tell you this, if the pit was only six inches deep, you still couldn't get out of it. Because you're dead. It doesn't make any difference how deep the pit is. A dead man can't get out of a six-inch pit any more than he can a 60-foot pit. He's dead. The old poem is, I had a dog whose name was Rover, and when he died, he died all over. Right? I mean, dead is dead. You're not going to get out of it even if the pit is not deep, but the pit was deep and you were dead. It's doubly bad. Some people, you know, really get troubled about election. Well, brother, I don't like election because election leaves out some people here who sincerely want to go to heaven and want to know God and want to love God. It leaves some of those people out because they're going to end up at the pearly gates and God's going to say, well, you're not on the list. You're out. Well, that person sincerely wanted to know God, wanted to be blessed of God, wanted to have a relationship, wanted to be with God, and that person was left out because they weren't on the list. That is not what election teaches. In fact, election teaches that every single person who ever had that sincere sentiment in their life got that sentiment because of election. 
And because they have it, they're guaranteed to live in glory based on what Christ did. It's a glorious teaching. And by the way, a lot of those people are very ignorant of that truth. It doesn't say, well, you, you love God and you're sincere, but you need to learn the doctrine of election and all these things, otherwise you're not truly saved. Those people are truly saved even if they never come in contact with and begin to understand election. Because what God did is effectual. But the Lord's New Testament church can teach you that truth and have you rooted in it so that you're not blown around by every wind of doctrine. And finally, he made mention of this notion of the immediacy of regeneration. And I think a lot of people hear that and they say, oh, it's very quick. You quickly were turned from a state of death in sin to a state of life in Christ. And I don't doubt that that's true because life is a binary proposition. You're either dead or you're alive. It's one or the other, right? But immediate means without mediation, right? It means there's no gospel minister in the middle of this trying to mediate the grace of God to you in that sense. It comes directly from God. That's what we mean when we say immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. We mean that just as Christ healed that man, in that example that we looked at in John chapter 5, he came to each and every one of his children at some point between their conception and death and raised them out of a state of death in regeneration immediately. He didn't need any preacher's help or anybody else's help to do it, and that's how it happened. Those are incredible, glorious truths. And I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to sound like I'm bragging on our church, and maybe I am a little bit. You could go to any number of churches in America today, and the vast majority of them do not teach the things that Brother Sonny put before us today. You are incredibly blessed to be in an assembly of people who hear it, look at it in the Bible, affirm it, believe it, and are blessed by it because it is a rare gem. You can become convinced that I come to this church, I hear these things a lot. Maybe you become kind of callous to them. But there are rare gems of truth in this world among Christians, and you're blessed to have heard them today. I am very blessed to have heard Sonny's preaching today, and uh, I'm looking forward to more preaching, and also some ham. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Neil Phelan, Jr., preaching from one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things that are so common in the religion of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.